Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 as we come back to our study of this great gospel. In the world of print, first edition books are valuable. Uh, First edition being all those copies that are printed from the first setting of the print type. And particularly for older books, uh, older print presses, that is uh, definitely so. Depending on what book it is, it can be very valuable. For example, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, if you own a first edition of that, you're holding something worth about $1,600 just for that one book. If you have a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin, you could fetch $4,000 for a first edition of that, or Adventures in Tom Sawyer, $8,500. If you happen to have a first edition of the entire set of the Lord of the Rings, you could have, in exchange for that, $28,000. I'd take it if I were you. (laughs) And um, if there is anyone out there holding a copy of Shakespeare's comedies in its first printing, you're holding something probably in the neighborhood of $200,000 for that. First editions are rare, they are valuable, they are topics of interest and study. People like to look at them, not only to kind of just pay attention to the oddities of what might be printing mistakes and things like that, but especially for some of those older books, people like to trace maybe how second editions and, uh, and other editions may have evolved, may have changed. Maybe there were some edits, some uh, development in the writer's mind as he, as he uh, unfolded his thoughts through the years. Well, today, we have an opportunity to look at a first edition of sorts. It comes to us in Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15, and it is if you will, the first edition of the Lord commissioning people, sending people on an evangelistic endeavor. It's not the final edition. The final edition comes to us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. In chapter 28, what we know of as the Great Commission, where the Lord sends out all of us to share the gospel, to make disciples. But this is the first time The first time that he commissions disciples to go out and to preach. And as we look at it this morning, we see the instructions that the Lord gives to the disciples here, how how he prepares to send them out. There are some striking differences between this and what comes in the very end of Matthew chapter 28. There are also some similarities And it's important as we look at this because we can learn some things by just taking note of those differences and those similarities and get some insight, if you will, not into just what the Lord's asking of these disciples, but even in our own commission, our own mandate to go out and make disciples. But before we get into any of that, let me uh, just sort of uh, help us put the details in our mind by reading these verses from 5 through 15 of Matthew chapter 10. Matthew says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if, you're, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or that town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. These are the first lessons for the first evangelistic endeavor, the first efforts by the disciples to go out and proclaim the gospel. And as I said, we can learn a lot about our own evangelistic efforts just by just by taking note of uh, four subjects that Jesus covers with his own disciples as he sends them out on this mission. The first one in verses 5 and 6 is how he characterizes their audience, how he characterizes their audience. He sends out the 12 and he limits where they're to go and who they're to talk to. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Now that is striking particularly when you get to the end of Matthew and the command is just the opposite. Because in Matthew 28, he tells, he tells us, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all peoples, all the Samaritans, all the Gentiles, everyone. And it's really difficult to dodge the implications of what's going on here. Jesus is clearly placing a priority on the preaching of the gospel to the Jews. He's placing a priority on the proclamation of the gospel to Israel. And it's not a surprise to you if you understand the flow of your Bible, because all the way back at the very beginning of Genesis, what you have is God giving a promise to a man named Abram and his descendants who became Israel. We call it the Abrahamic Covenant. And in that covenant, he promises to, make, uh, uh, to give Abraham a great name. He promises to give him a land. He promises that he was going to give him a descendant. At that point, his wife Sarah had been barren. And through the descendant, he's going to multiply those descendants so that they'll be like the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. And then, after all that, he says that it is through you and those descendants and through that descendant of yours, through that, he says, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And it's overlooked by a lot of people, but there is a necessary sequence taking place. There is a kind of a priority that takes place, even embedded there in the opening chapters of Genesis. God does his work first and primarily through Abraham and his descendants. There is a, a sort of a priority, if you will, among the nations. God has made promises, and those promises need to be uh, uh, prioritized. They need to be worked out. They need to be fulfilled to some extent in even Abraham's descendants. And so as a part of the plan of God doing all this, Israel would have the privilege of being the first 
to experience the Messiah. He would be born among them, from among them. They would be the first to hear from the Messiah. They would be the first to have the gospel preached to them. Now, Jesus understood all this. He understood the plan. He understood the way it was revealed. He understood the way it's constructed, and he yields to it. He prohibits his disciples from traveling to anyone but the Jews at this point because he understood the way God had called and the way God had appointed the gospel to be preached. Now, of course, we know that most of the Jews would reject the preaching of the gospel, but still he wanted them to be the first to hear it. By the way, even the apostle Paul later on in his own ministry, the apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, even when he went out to preach the gospel in Gentile territories, we read in Acts 13, for example, in Antioch of Pisidia, that he went to the synagogue and he preached first in the synagogue to the Jews. And of course, they eventually rejected the gospel. But in Acts 13, 46, Paul says this, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. It was necessary, he says. In God's economy, in his covenant plan, God has ordained and God has, uh, God has uh, been pleased to have the Jews be the ones who first hear the gospel, or first have the opportunity, and, and for that matter, be the first to reject it. They're the ones who hear it, they're the first to reject it. And this was Paul's understanding of God's covenant economy. And so where he went when he preached the gospel, what did he do? He went to the synagogues. He always went to the synagogues first. If there was a synagogue in the town, he preached there. And later on, when he was talking to the Romans about his gospel, trying to articulate his gospel in the book of Romans, he tells them in the opening sort of declaration of that book, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So Paul understood this. He understood that in God's sovereign work, that the Jews were to be the first to hear, and in most cases, they would be the first to reject. The scripture, by the way, reminds us again and again not to forget that, that even after the life of of Christ, and even after the resurrection, and even after his ascension, you and I, who are not Jews, we're Gentiles, we are to keep this priority in mind. Paul, later on in Romans, speaking to the Gentiles in chapter 11, verse 17, he talks about the Jews. He says, If some of the branches were broken off, that is to say, all these Jews who rejected the gospel and and uh, turned away from their Messiah. He says, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you, if you are, he says, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. What's he saying? He's saying that it is not the Gentiles who support the current covenant plan of salvation. It's actually God's covenant plan of salvation with Israel, which provides salvation for you. 
Because God made a promise to Abraham, and it was through Abraham and through Abraham's descendants by which all the nations would be blessed. And Paul says, don't forget it. Don't forget it. Even as those branches are broken off, even as you're grafted in, even as you're experiencing all the blessings of salvation, don't forget that there is a root and there is a a stump that is uh, God's work and God is accomplishing it and he's going to carry it out. Jesus understood all this. And so when he sends his disciples out to preach, he asked them not to preach to the Gentiles and not to preach to the Samaritans at this point, but only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, which reflects his heart all the way back in chapter nine. Remember in verse 36, he looked out over Israel and he saw all of Israel like sheep who are harassed and helpless without a shepherd. They may not have wanted to admit it, but that was kind of their state for all of time. I mean, they had really throughout all these centuries because of spiritual leaders that, that lied to them and led them astray and confused them and scattered them. They had been essentially a lost flock, a lost group. And here's Jesus, the great shepherd, seeking to go after those who are lost and to gather them back into the fold. Now, we need to understand this, but also to understand that as these restrictions are placed on the disciples, the instructions that Jesus gives them for the mission anticipate the day when they're going to go beyond the house of Israel. In fact, down in verse 17, Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues verse 18, and will drag you before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So you already get the impression that Jesus is giving them this restriction, but he's anticipating as he's giving them instruction, he's telling them that some of the things that I'm telling you now are going to be applicable now, and they're going to have application in the days to come. When eventually your mission goes beyond Israel, and eventually your mission carries you before Gentiles. And so you need to be learning, and you need to be applying. And there's application not only for them, but for us. There are things that Jesus has to say to them, but also things that Jesus has to say to us that we can benefit from. And so, after noting how he characterizes the audience, we can quickly then turn our attention in verses 7 and 8 to how he clarifies the message how he clarifies the message. Proclaim, he says, as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Now, we covered some of this ground last week just to help us to understand that when Jesus is giving this mandate to the apostles here, he's doing some things that that uh, were similar in his own ministry. He preached the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and now he wants them to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He healed the sick. He cleansed lepers. He cast out demons. He raised people from the dead, and now he wants them to heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and raise the dead. And as we said last week, all of this is important. Jesus doesn't entrust this to all of his 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 followers he had called them and selected from among them 
only these 12, and he had authorized only these 12 to do these things in order to validate through all of these signs and even, honestly, through the message that these people are proclaiming the gospel that he has ordained and entrusted. And those signs validate them as the eventual custodians of that message, the eventual heirs of that ministry. It's not to say that there aren't certain other things going on with some of the healing. We know that Jesus himself, when he healed people, partly it was because he was moved with compassion. Partly it was because he saw all of this suffering. That was certainly a part of why he healed when he first came. And by the way, it'll be a part of why he does that when he returns again. When he comes and he banishes suffering and he wipes away tears and he establishes peace on the earth, part of why he does that is because he just has compassion for the suffering that people are going through. And I'm sure, no doubt, that when the disciples go and they participate in healing and they participate in cleansing lepers, there's a big part of that as well that is an aspect of them just showing mercy. But certainly at the core of it is the validation of who they are. And by the way, we should also note that this is not what some people call power evangelism. There are those who would come along and say, well, what we need to do today is we need to open ourselves back up to the idea of healing and raising the dead and all those. If, we, if the church could just co- sort of recapture our faith in those things and redo those things, boy, wouldn't the, wouldn't the converts just kind of come in if we could do power evangelism? There are books by that title that have been proposed and that's their main thesis. But it shouldn't escape us that when the disciples did eventually go out and perform all these miracles, there was no massive influx of converts. The purpose of these miracles is not to create a wave of converts who see these things and are overwhelmed by their power. The purpose of these miracles is to validate these men as the eventual heirs of the ministry of Christ. They're the ones who are guardians of this gospel of Jesus Christ. They're the ones who receive divine revelation. They're the authors of scripture. They define the doctrine of the church. And so Jesus is validating them in that sense. But even as he sends them out with this authority, he clarifies that the message they are to preach is the same message that he preached. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We've already seen this in Christ's ministry. We've already seen it in John the Baptist's ministry. This urgency, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It comes with a kind of call to action, a sense of urgency. It is, it is in front of you. It's right at your doorstep. It's right at hand. And with that came a call for repentance and faith. In fact, in Mark's account, he just simply says it that way. They went out and preached that men should repent. So there is a sort of an implied call of repentance in this message. Preach the kingdom of God and preach faith and repentance in Christ. And remember and keep a focus on that plain and simple mandate. Jesus is just telling them, you are supposed to proclaim the same message. He probably understood the need to clarify that so that they didn't get off track, so that they didn't deviate. So even with 
the ability and the power to do all these miracles, they didn't forget the fact that what the, the central thing that they're about is proclaiming faith and repentance in Christ. It is heartbreaking to see churches go through seasons or per completely go down a pathway when they are dominated by other interests than the simple proclamation of this gospel. Social interest, economic interest, political interest, whatever it might be. Or in some cases, they get consumed with prosperity and health and wealth. Or in some cases, they are elevating the felt needs of their particular audience and they're trying to remake themselves as experts in behavioral theory and psychoanalysis, trying to provide sort of bastions of comfort in times of, of uh, sorrow. But really, all of that moving away from the clear proclamation that Jesus mandated for these disciples of faith and repentance in Christ. He sends them out. He gives them the message. He doesn't want them to find some message that connects with the felt needs of their audience or the cultural cues of the day. He gives them this clear mandate that he knows will accomplish God's purposes. And by the way, it sets a paradigm for all faithful evangelism, even when at the very end he's giving his great commission. Luke tells us that Jesus says to the disciples in Luke 24, 48, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So that message of, of uh, uh, faith and repentance that was here in the early edition of his commission for the disciples is still there. That hasn't changed. How he validates the message, who he entrusts with divine revelation, who he gives this authority for, for healing and power, that may change. But the message hasn't changed. And the clear focus of the evangelistic mission can't change. Thirdly, we can learn a lot about our own evangelistic efforts by taking note in 9 and 10 about how he calls for trust. Because after he tells them to heal the sick and raise the dead there at the end of verse 8, he also reminds them, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. So in the simplest terms, he wants them to understand that they can trust the Lord for whatever needs they have. They can trust the Lord for whatever needs they have. They were, were to learn this lesson in the simplest, most profound way here at the very beginning. They would go out and they would go with a confident trust that the Lord would supply for all of their needs through the generosity of those who are receiving the gospel. And so he says, you're not going to, even in this instance, you're not going to receive any kind of payment. Uh, you're not going to take any gold or silver or copper with you either. And you're not even going to take a bag or a knapsack. You're not going to take two tunics and you're going to have no sandals. He's not asking them, by the way, to go bare, barefoot. What he's really talking about here, we might say, are extra provisions. He's telling them, don't take an extra tunic. Don't take an extra pair of 
of sandals. Don't take an extra staff. Don't take a uh, sort of a, uh, a stash of cash as you go, a knapsack. You're not supposed to take all of the time that it would take to collect all of that stuff so that when you launch out on your journey, you don't have to worry about any kind of uh, security, if you will, because you got all this stuff to fall back on. You got all these extra provisions. Just go. And at this point, you go and you see that the Lord will provide. Now, admittedly, that sounds perhaps a bit reckless. And indeed it was. It was in this particular instance, the way that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples a radical lesson. He wanted to teach them that God is going to be able to provide for them, no matter what the circumstances, that they can trust God and he will give them everything they need for fulfilling whatever he asked them to do. That's a difficult lesson for people to learn. And Jesus wanted to learn it and wanted them to learn it in the most stark ways. There are all kinds of people who would consider doing ministry, even sharing the gospel, going on a mission even. They would consider doing that was it not for all of the insecurities involved. All the sort of pitfalls, all the things that it might cost them. For some, it has to do just simply with an evaluation of whether they want to do this vocationally. Whether they want to go out and have to rely on the Lord to provide all of their needs because they're going to do this full time. And so they want to kind of wait and wait and wait until maybe they have some sort of perfect situation where all the financial security, all the security they need is there. They have enough cash. They have enough cloaks. They have enough sandals. They have enough staffs. And in fact, there are many who have operated in a lack of trust that has really paralyzed them into disobedience or in some cases uselessness. Waiting and waiting and waiting until all the risks are gone. Waiting and waiting and waiting until there are no real dangers. No ways that they could ever lose or suffer or whatever it might be. But Jesus wants the disciples to have a different lesson. That the first and foremost thing that you have to learn is that the Lord will take care of you. He will take care care of you. He will provide all of your needs. Now, in this first iteration, that was taught to them in the most radical way. But even this needs to be read in light of Luke 22, where at the end of Jesus's ministry, he's gathered with the disciples in the upper room. He's prepared to go and be arrested that night and be crucified the following day. And he says to them in Luke 22, verse 35, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me that he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus is telling them that they're about to face a season of uncertainty. They're going to face an extended time when he's not going to be there to support them, not physically, where they're going to be uh, dealing with 
some difficult circumstances and he wants them to make the necessary provisions. He wants them to take wise and prudent steps. And even as you go on throughout the rest of the scripture, we find that the principle that Jesus gives here in Matthew chapter 10, that a worker is worthy of his food or worthy of his wages, actually becomes the foundation by which others, the Apostle Paul and and others, uh, would admonish the church to participate in supporting those who are going out and preaching the gospel. He wants you to give to uh, to those who would be promoting and, 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 and proclaiming and discipling and leading. Paul uses it of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to talk about how he, uh, he says he robbed from other churches, that is to say he received gifts from the Philippian church, from the Thessalonian church, in order to facilitate him preaching the gospel to the Corinthians. Or later on in Ephesians, he uses this to talk about how the Ephesian church needs to learn to support their own leadership. So don't confuse what Jesus is saying here, that somehow this is God's design, that you just make no provisions for the future. He's teaching them a radical lesson, which in itself needs to be moderated with future circumstances. But the principle doesn't change. The principle is what the disciples needed to hold on to. It's what they needed to learn. And even later on, when they did carry a knapsack, when they did have an extra pair of sandals, they couldn't forget this. That their ultimate security wasn't strapped to their back in their knapsack. And it wasn't the extra staff they were carrying. And it wasn't the extra money bag they had. Their ultimate source of security is and always will be the Lord. And they need to hold on to that. And Paul tells the later churches to remember that and to promote that. It's the same, really, even if you're not in vocational ministry. There are people who understand that they need to be preaching. They understand they need to be proclaiming, but they're always calculating. They're always thinking about the risk. If it's a job... If it's a relationship, they just think and they wonder, if I do this, what's it going to cost me? You need to learn the lesson as equally as anybody. That you can't do ministry that way. That you can't proclaim the gospel that way. You can't go and expect and demand that that God give you some sort of guarantee of security that's sitting on the side so that finally you can step into the situation and speak the way you need to speak. You have to trust God cares for his people. He will care for his people. He will take care of you. He'll take care of your family. He'll take care of your job. He'll take care of all those things. You obey him. You obey him. You can trust him. Fourthly, we can learn also as we look here at how he contends with the responses they're going to get. So after he talks to him about trust, after he talks to him about provision, Beginning in verse 11, he takes up the issue of their lodging, where they're going to experience, in some cases, gracious responses, and in other cases, rejection. So he says in verse 11, whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. 
And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now, this deals with the issue of hospitality, where you're going to stay as you travel, which was not such a simple thing in those days. As a matter of fact, it was, a, it was an interesting time in the, in the uh, you might say, the travel industry. Because for the first time in the history of the world, people had legitimate roads. For all the ills of the Roman Empire, one thing they did whenever they came to occupy a territory is they brought infrastructure. They built roads, they built aqueducts, they built ports so that you could travel by ship in between nations. And so there was uh, almost kind of an explosion of travel for the first time in history taking place across the Roman Empire, but there wasn't necessarily all of the other supporting industries that come along with that. So you could travel very easily, but as you traveled, finding somewhere to stay was very difficult. You had obvious options. You could have stayed out under the stars and slept in nature, but you risked being attacked by animals or being mobbed by robbers. There were uh, some uh, cuponas or, or calponas, as they called them, Latin word for in, but these were generally flea-infested, filthy, disreputable brothels. And obviously Jesus wouldn't have them staying there. And so he wants them to seek out hospitality. Because of the lack of places to stay, this idea would have been fairly well developed. There would have been expectations and norms when you arrived into town of how to find these places. These missionaries knew when they arrived how to put out the word to let people know that they needed a place to stay for the night. And Jesus is telling them, this is what you're going to do. And when you do it, I'm going to supply all of your needs through it. You're going to have lodging for the night. You're going to have all the provisions, the food, and everything that you need. And of course, by the way, as the gospel continued to expand beyond the borders of Israel, this would be a necessary thing. People went out and preached, and as they preached, as the missionaries went, wherever they went, they would have to lodge in homes from time to time. And so throughout the New Testament, you see these continual repeated admonitions for hospitality, which is not talking about getting your friends over for a football game. It's actually a word for loving strangers. The word takes, uh, it's made up of two parts, phileo and xenos. Philozenoi is the Greek word. It literally means a lover of strangers. Because hospitality in those days meant that you open up your home to traveling missionaries who you'd never met before. And you had to show kindness to them. And so, for example, in Romans 12, Paul reminds the church, he urges the church, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This was a form of contributing to the saints. It was a form of supporting the work of proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. And Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 9, commands that this kind of support be given freely and without bitterness. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, he says. So you weren't supposed to uh, allow your sort of inconvenience that it might be to lead you to some sort of bitterness. 
You're supposed to be an eager participant in this. You're not looking at these people who are coming through town as freeloaders. They're not there imposing on you or imposing the mission on you. You're supposed to gladly participate in this. John tells us in 3 John 5, it's a faithful thing you do in all of your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. So you've got no relationship to these people. You've got no connection. You have no pre-warning. There's no sort of calling ahead, no booking online. Someone just shows up in town that day preaching the gospel and you are expected to open up your home, open up your provision, open up your life to them. Paul tells Timothy and Titus, excuse me, tells Titus in Titus 3, do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So he's saying, look, Apollos is coming to town. He's carrying along with him this attorney. And what I want you to do is make sure that they're well taken care of. They have houses to stay. And when they go on their journey, give them something for the road. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Show hospitality. Show love to these strangers and don't resent them for it. Interestingly, in 3 John, after John says it's a faithful thing you do uh, to these brothers since they're strangers, he goes on in the next verse. He says, these strangers have testified to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers of the truth. So John is telling them that you ought to send them out in a manner that is worthy, or you could translate it as suitable. Send them out in a way that is suitable for God because they're going in the name of God. They've gone out for the sake of the name. So we should support them and send them out as we would the Lord. If you could just imagine that Christ was coming through town and he wanted to stay at your house and then he's going on his way, what should you do? That's the idea. And by the way, back here in Matthew chapter 10, this is what Jesus has in mind. What he's saying is, you go to town and you find a person who's worthy. You find someone you might say is suitable, someone who would be a good partner in the ministry. And so as they go out and they find these homes, they're supposed to find a suitable home and then they are to greet it. Which, by the way, John in 2 John, he gives a command in the opposite direction, talking about false teachers who would want to sort of game the system and come into town and, and um, exploit the hospitality of true faithful believers in order to enrich themselves. John says, if anyone comes to you, 2 John 10, and does not abide by this teaching, that is to say apostolic teaching, do not receive him into your house and give him no greeting. Why? For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. 
So don't receive him into your house and don't greet him because to do that would be to take part in his wicked works. Or another way to say that is it would be giving the impression to a watching world that you endorse his doctrine and affirm his spiritual standing. And John says you can't do that. You cannot do that without being entangled with his ultimate testimony, taking part in his wicked works. And this is probably the idea that Jesus has here when he commands his disciples and he says, when you go, don't enter into any unworthy or insuitable accommodations because you don't want to become associated with those who are ultimately going to mock and reject the gospel. You don't want to be entangled with their testimony. You don't want that kind of partnership. It will not advance the gospel. It will not further the cause. It will not promote the ministry. It doesn't matter who the person is. It doesn't matter how prominent they are. They might be the most prominent house in town. They might be one of the most prominent families in the village. But if they are not receptive and humble and teachable to the truth, You do not want to become entangled with them. Do not partner with them in this effort to promote the gospel. Jesus doesn't want the mission tainted, if you will, by alignment with the wrong people. Which sometimes is a temptation. People driven by pragmatic concerns begin to evaluate things on a materialistic basis and they imagine that they can partner in ministry with the wealthy, with the prominent, with the well-known, with the notable. If their face is on the TV or if their you know, name is, is uh, sort of recognized, if they have a brand... That, that somehow linking arms with them is going to somehow help promote the gospel. It's not. Once you link arms with them, you are tainted, you are entangled with any of their ultimate stiff-necked rejection and unwillingness to yield to the gospel truth. And so Jesus is warning them. If it's an unworthy, if it's an unsuitable house, don't even bother. Don't go there. Don't link arms with those people. Don't, don't, don't go through some sort of elaborate greeting. Just go find a suitable partner. And what makes them suitable is not their financial means. And what makes them suitable is not their prominence. And what makes them suitable is not their, their sort of uh, uh, influence from a worldly standpoint. What makes them suitable is one thing. They are yielded to the Lordship of Christ and to his word. That's who you want to link arms with. That's who you want to work with. Really profound lessons for the modern day church. As we endeavor to take the gospel out ourselves, we may not be necessarily staying in one another's homes, but we're always making these kinds of evaluations. Those who are one way or another going to support the gospel. Those who one way or another are going to be making some provision doesn't matter how much money they have, we need to make sure that they're worthy partners. They're good partners. And of course, Jesus says in verse 14, if they don't receive you and if they will not listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town, which kind of picks up on a a Jewish custom when people move through a, 
a Gentile territory or even a Samaritan territory, they considered that to be defiled. They considered that place to be under the judgment of God. And they didn't want in any way to be subject to that judgment so that as they walked out of the territory, they would tap the toes of their sandals on the ground to, to shake even the dust off the bottom of their shoes in case God wanted to judge even the dust. They didn't want to have any part of it, any association with it. And in doing this, Jesus is sort of tapping into this Jewish custom, basically encouraging them to shake off the responsibility of the failure of people to respond to their message. He doesn't want his disciples carrying with them somehow the guilt and the burden of the rejection of other people. That's not their responsibility. That is not what they're supposed to carry. Again, there's just so much insight into that one statement. I wish we had time to really unpack it, but many Christians fall into this trap. They carry on their shoulders the rejection of the gospel by others in such a heavy and profound way, it actually causes them to not want to share at all. They did it. They got rejected. They felt terrible for days or weeks. Jesus doesn't want you to do that. He wants these disciples to be able to leave the responsibility of rejection with those who reject it which will hopefully free you up in your heart and mind to keep proclaiming the gospel, to keep going and keep moving until you find people who are willing to listen. There are billions of people in the world and there are going to be billions of people who reject the gospel. But there will be some, they won't be the majority, but there will be some who are at a place in their life and in their heart where they are ready to receive. And what Jesus wants us doing is not spending our time trying to hit every single you know, multi-billion people and just twist their arms until they finally yield. What he wants us doing is moving through those people until we find those who are ready, who are willing, who are receptive. And not letting the rejectors to cause us to shrink back. He says in verse 12, those who reject the gospel, truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Those notorious cities in Genesis 19 who faced catastrophic destruction, not only for their sin, but if you remember, they faced it because they rejected the messengers that God had sent them. God has sent them messengers to call them to repentance. They rejected the messengers and they faced their judgment. Now he's saying, those who hear the gospel, the gospel of Christ, there's an even more severe accountability. There's even a greater level of judgment that's going to come to them, but that's not you. That's not on you. You can't bear that. That's on them. By the way, Jesus is not talking about people who are just slow to understand or believe He's specifically talking about people who, after having a clear presentation of the gospel, stiffen their neck, harden their heart, and they resist and oppose. When their mind is firmly set against hearing, or maybe even antagonistic to hearing, turn your efforts elsewhere. When someone has clearly heard and understand and rejects it, do not continue to agonize or antagonize them. Shake the dust off your feet 
Do not cast your pearls before the swine. Paul says the Lord's bondservant must not be argumentative. He's kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong. Hoping maybe that perhaps by God's grace and mercy, he might lead people to repentance. But you're not argumentative. You're not going to argue anyone into the kingdom. That's the principle here. So our ministry is aimed at those who are ready to hear. And we keep speaking, we keep preaching. And as we do that, we understand that the rejection, all of that is in the hands of the Lord. Reception is all in the hands of the Lord. Protection is in the hands of the Lord. Guarding you from the risk is in the hands of the Lord. Whether or not God's going to use your preaching, all that's in the hands of the Lord. You can trust Him with all of that. That's the message that Jesus is giving to them. I'm sending you out. You are my ambassadors. You're my envoys. You're doing my ministry. You're conveying my message. But as you go, as you do all that, Put it all in my hands. Your support, your provision, the rejection, the exception, put it all in my hands. There's no need for you to be calculating and thinking about all the ways that you could manipulate someone or partner with some sort of prominent, uh, massive media endeavor in order to get the gospel out. Just find receptive, worthy partners and go out and speak and then trust the Lord see many of you haven't done that you haven't done that in a while it could be months in some cases years since you have told anyone about the gospel you've gotten fearful about rejection and what it might cost you you've gotten fearful about whether people are going to respond in a negative way. You feel responsible. You feel terrible when that happens. You can't bear all that. You are not operating in faith. What Jesus is asking for here is for you to believe. Just trust him. Put it in his hands. Open your mouth and become his instrument. Well, there's more that Jesus has in the following verses and much, much more for us to hear as we get into this passage in the coming weeks. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're burdened by these mandates knowing that it lays on us a responsibility just as it did on those first evangelists. And we cannot help but confess our lack of trust and our lack of faith, our lack of willingness to put ourselves out there and to face the rejection. It may be because we've had an immature understanding. It may be because we haven't listened to your words. It may be because we've been overcome with our own insecurities and fear. But Lord, we want to repent of all those things today. And we pray that you would help us. Help us even as you sent us to make disciples of all nations, help us to proclaim the simple, straightforward message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.